Welcome to the Fury Theory Podcast, brought to you by EFB Advocacy. EFB means excellent, excellent for, for business. business. <laughs> I'm joined by my colleagues John Easton and Adam Belmar. John Easton is a native Oregonian, a noted campaign strategist, a good friend, a former chief of staff to Kelly Ayotte and Gordon Smith, and an all-around hell of a guy. Thank you. Adam Belmar is a native Washingtonian, a huge Redskins fan, a graduate of Boston University, a recovering journalist, a former deputy communications advisor to President George W. Bush, and another uh, great American. Welcome, Adam. <laughs> Thank you, John. Theory one, Brexit. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson is rumored once again to be on his way out. Mike Pompeo, the current CIA director and former House member from Kansas, is rumored to take his place. And Tom Cotton, the junior senator from Arkansas and a decorated Army veteran, is rumored to take over his job at the CIA. This plan has been drawn up according to news reports by Chief of Staff John Kelly, who used to be one of the close friends of Sexy Rexy. Here's my theory. Once Mr. Tillerson called the president a moron in a private meeting, his days were numbered. And most folks at the State Department who hate his budget cutting are more than willing to see him go. Adam Belmar, you worked in the White House. You have dealt with the State Department on many different occasions, as we all have. Uh, what are your thoughts on this latest rumor from the rumor mill? I think the rumors are out there because they are 100% true and that they've been put into the water so as to create some sort of a communications narrative for when this happens, whether that's this afternoon uh, after this lunch today or if there is a little bit more thoughtfulness to it in terms of sequence. It's, it's actually happening, and um, I think it is just part and parcel of the fact that President Trump didn't really understand what he needed in a Secretary of State, didn't understand how he was going to have to interact with that person and share power because the president can't be all things to all people in this government, despite what President Trump says, John, constantly. He's like, we don't need all these people. I'm the, you know, I, I make the decisions. I'm the Secretary of State is such an important role for our nation at so many levels, and he's just starting to get to understand that. And whether he fouled the relationship or Secretary Tillerson wasn't quite up to the job, that's not important to me uh, at this point. I, I just think that there will be a somewhat peaceful, hopefully not acrimonious uh, resolution to all of this. And if the president honestly feels that uh, the CIA Director Pompeo is the right guy, you guys predicted it uh, many months ago that this is the way we'd go, I think that's good for America, and it's at least going to show our allies with whom Pompeo has been dealing so closely, especially in the Middle East, that there is consistency, and he's got the ear of the president, and that should give people confidence finally. So, John Easton, uh, Rex Tillerson was seen as one of the adults in the room, one of the guys that could, uh, you know, people could trust. But then he went to the State Department, and, you know, he really um, shook things up. The people, the, the diplomats can't stand the guy. And he closes the door, doesn't get to come out. And, you know, I, I know people there. I like people there. Um, but what are your thoughts about Tillerson's performance as Secretary of State? I think that his performance hasn't been that bad. And, and, and all that, inner, you know, inside the agency and how all that operates, I mean, that's obviously another discussion. 
but this is operating at such a high level. The the differences between he and Trump, the 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 uh, lack of comfort between the two. And and Adam is exactly right about. I don't think President Trump really knew what he wanted, what he needed out of a, a Secretary of State. But I mean, let's take a step back. I mean, for one thing, you know, these two were at odds over a couple of major issues: North North Korea, Iran, right? Even even some of our um, our Arab allies. I think there were just some. There was real tension there. But even step further back, I mean. This the Secretary of State role under President Trump, extremely difficult job. You look at the Secretary of Commerce, Secretary of Labor, Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. These folks can go under the radar, right. and they're not part of uh, Trump's Twitter, you know, rage out there. But Secretary of State, you've got all the world's hotspots. You know, in your portfolio, and that's exactly where Trump is going every single day. Is he's reacting, and he's he's sort of uh, he's impatient. And the State Department and the State Department world, the whole all over the world, it's a slow plotting process. And these folks, these these really good Americans that are all over the globe helping the United States, that's how they operate. That is the antithesis of Donald Trump. Yeah. He does not operate he's, that way. He's impulsive. He's impatient. He's impulsive, and that's yeah. not the the State Department. You know. It, it, the calling the president a moron, obviously problematical. Uh, I get that. I think the things that have been even more difficult for Americans to deal with was the, the sort of dual track where the secretary of state was making it known that we were doing some open diplomacy, trying to c- communicate with the North Koreans, and the president tweets out that he's wasting his time. You know. When you're undercutting an important voice like that and you're attacking other foreign leaders from the White House on your Twitter account, one would imagine that this will be a great relief for Secretary Tillerson. Right. I mean, I think about that. And, you know, the thing that Tillerson brought to the table is he looked very grand. He's a statesman. He looks like a statesman. He's got the the white hair. He looks like he had that the gravitas that Trump really doesn't have. Um, But he hasn't really done – I mean, the diplomats hate him, and I think that's that, that's from a management perspective. You know, Tillerson had never been in the State Department, never really served in government, so in many ways he was kind of like Trump. But you really can't have two bulls in the China shop at the same time because it does lead to some confusion. Um, I, I do think it's interesting that you know you had this great triumphant. You had Tillerson, Mattis, and Kelly, and that Kelly is now the guy that seems to be kind of all right. Let's get this guy out of here. And maybe you're right. Maybe Tillerson is more than happy to go. And you think about, you know, these tweets that the president put out earlier this week, retweeting the Muslim videos. And, you know, Theresa May basically wants to throw him in jail, which is, you know, probably good politics for her. But who cares what Theresa May says? Yeah, but I, I think that, that, that Chief of Staff John Kelly really has no choice. I mean, right. he, as Adam was saying, Rex Tillerson has very little credibility, if, if, if any, left. And, and I, John Kelly is a guy who knows that that's just not sustainable. One thing that I, I've, I've really warmed to, and I, I felt like the optics, the last time we talked about this at the Fury Theory podcast table, uh, I, was, I was very bullish on uh, the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, uh, Nikki Haley, as being the, the, the person to take this job. And, and you guys were really feeling something different. The reason I believe it now, uh, and why you may have been so prescient before, is that they have a really tight working relationship. Pompeo is briefing the president every day and there's just so few people who have that kind of uh i, I could dare say call it intimate relationships where at all hours of the yeah, day and night 
uh, these two men are working together, they know each other. Yeah. There's got to be some confidence that's important to have, a, you know, the president's I, confidence. Not, I, that's true. I, I, don't, I don't know if that's enough. I don't know if that's enough to be successful in that job under a President Trump who is very impulsive in his statements about whatever is the top topic. You're right. Yeah. It's necessary but not sufficient. I think that's right. I will say, though, that Pompeo – I remember when Porter Goss went over right. to the CIA. For a hot minute? For a hot minute. And the CIA – Intelligentsia, the, the bureaucrats, hated him and drove him out of the of the CIA. The, the bureaucrats within the CIA actually really like Pompeo, which I think says a lot about Pompeo. I think it'd be very interesting to see how when he goes over to the State Department, if he goes over, and how he handles that. Which I think I think he'll handle it pretty well because well, he's a politician. He's a politician, and that, I, I want the, the the other point I want to bring up is you have someone like Tom Cotton, who's rumored to be the CIA. I don't get that. Someone's going to have to help me. I know, I, I know Tom Cotton. I've known him for a long time. He's a very capable guy, also a Harvard guy. He's a little bit more um, a man in a hurry. Yeah. And uh, if you're the CIA, you're like, I'm going to give this guy the what for. But he's also a hawk. Um, so we'll see how that goes, John Easton. Yeah, no, I think and, – and by all accounts, Tom Cotton has been a, a real team player from the moment that uh, Donald Trump was sworn in. And that obviously is, is very helpful to his cause, if no, he gets it. it no, no doubt about that. And I think that Cotton has been one of the senators who, as you pointed out, John, one of the earliest and quickest and longest supporters of this president, willing to kind of take on a lot of dirty stuff. Dirty, I meant tough politics. Um, and I think that that is, will give him this job if he wants. I think Tom I think Tom Cotton wants to run for president, so CIA is not a bad place to run from. Agreed. Theory two, super PAC, super freak. Super freak, super, super freak. He's super freaky. The New York Times has editorialized against the Republican tax bill. That's completely appropriate. It has placed story after story, masked as real news, tearing the tax bill to shreds on the front page in a way that I think amounts to fake news. The final straw, though, was when the New York Times used its Twitter page to personally lobby Republican senators directly to vote against the tax bill as if it were some huge super PAC. My theory, the old gray lady has to decide if it is a place that covers all the news that's fit to print or it has decided to become just one big Super PAC. My view is that as becoming a super PAC and in the process, killing its effectiveness and destroying journalism in the process. Uh, Adam Belmar, I said process twice in one sentence, which I probably shouldn't do. I need a good editor with that one line that I used. Um, we'll revisit that. Well, maybe we can revisit that. We can fix that in post. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what the hell is up with the New York Times? You know, journalism has gone mad, uh, and I feel to some extent, uh, and I want to deal with the substance of your theory, but the president has changed every rule, and so now everybody is reexamining every rule and saying, well, if he can be that outrageous and do things that were never acceptable before, then so can we. Um, I feel very disappointed that they've taken this stance that uh, this bastion of world-class journalism has turned into a... Uh, trumped up advocacy campaign. I don't think that's their role. I think they're they're a bit lost. 
And I still have great respect for the New York Times, even though I don't agree with the liberal bent that they take. Uh, they play an important role. They really need to check themselves, and uh, they're almost playing the game like, like television news these days, where anything for eyeballs. And now, the New York Times, John Easton, is different than any other newspaper. I mean, it has been the, the, the record, the paper record for most of history, mm-hmm. American history. They have so many good reporters, and they have high journalistic standards. Absolutely. Carol Hulse is a great guy, one of the best reporters I know. Cheryl Stolberg, great reporter. Robert Pear, they've got great reporters. Uh, but they also have, they, I think they've jumped the shark on some of this stuff, and they hate Trump so much. And now they're kind of using their their editorial page has bled over into the front page. What, what are your thoughts? Yeah, it's a shame, and, and I hope that it is temporary, and I, I really hope that it goes, uh, it swings a little bit back to, to what I think is the, the real just important and uh, invaluable role that journalism plays in our society and in politics, really, which is to be a, a fair arbiter of, of political races, of policy debates. I mean, I cannot overestimate how important that is. And, and yes, I, I, sure, the New York Times doesn't like this tax bill. All right, well, I mean, there's Reagan in 86 and the Bush tax cuts in in uh, 2001. I mean, we've been down this road before, but I don't think you've quite seen this kind of activism from who is supposed to be, other than the editorial pages, a neutral arbiter. And and I just think it's it, it it's really damaging to our democracy. And we're, we're almost... We're just used to the hyperbole right. in every quarter of our society, and yet on these issues from this bastion of journalistic integrity, to see them engaging in a political-style hyperbole, that you are way off base, and you need to reel it, reel it back in, baby. You know, I, I'm interested, I also want to talk a little bit about social media, because I think one of the fascinating things about the, the world of Twitter is now you don't only see kind of interesting tweets from interesting people and who sometimes Donald Trump retweets. Uh, you also see journalists, and they tweet their opinions. And so they are not just reporting the news as they see it. They are tweeting their opinions, and it clouds everything. So now I know this person was a huge supporter of Hillary Clinton, hates Donald Trump, and is reporting on the news. And I think to myself, well, I'm going to read this news a little bit more carefully to find out if, if this is, is fake news. And then the New York Times uses Twitter to basically beg Republicans to vote against this tax and bill. And that's, that's the point. Which I, I can't believe. Yeah. Well, <laughs> there's a lot of nodding going around. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's hard to, if you see it this way to, to disagree with that. But uh, I, I, I do believe that individual journalists uh, at the New York Times are probably feeling the same way in a lot of cases. And I wonder if they feel like they have a voice within their organization at this point to, to try and rein it back in. Yeah, and I, and I think that's your point about social media. I think social media is driving reporters to places a lot of these reporters, Adam, you're talking about don't where they don't want to go. Right. right. They're, they're, they're not interested in, 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 in creating clickbait and in, in popping off at, a, at 140 characters or now 280. Uh, they're interested in, in most of them anywhere. Interested in these good, more in-depth articles that, that where they can really explore an issue, explore their sources, really get out some good journalism. But let's face it; I mean, in today's rapid-fire journalism 
you know, the way it's changed, uh, a lot of them don't have any choice. And I think that uh, there's a real tension, I think, in the newsrooms now, both the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, all of them. Can I, can I add one more thing to it? One of the things that I think for this first year of the Trump presidency that's so interesting when we look back at it is right up at the very beginning, Jonathan Carl of ABC News pointedly asked then Press Secretary Sean Spicer, Sean, is it your intention to never lie from that podium, <laughs> to tell the truth? And it's almost like getting sworn in. Do you huh. hereby, you know, raise your right hand, put your, put your hand on the Bible? And uh, he didn't feel it all that well. And the question was asked again, and it had been asked of previous press secretaries. But it's, it's, the supposition is your boss lies all the time. And you know what? I, I don't like the word, but I have no compunction about saying that the President of the United States um, says things that aren't true. Why he does that, I don't know. How often he does it is clearly adjudicated by the press. But when the press gets into um, you know, this advocacy and stops being the arbiter of real truth, you know, it's just a whole bunch of people pointing fingers, and it's devolved into something it really. Right, let me let me let me ask a quick question. Ajit Pai said that um, he didn't think that social media was necessarily the best thing for democracy. Uh, two questions: Who's winning on social media, President Trump or the media uh, on social media? Trump or the me uh, or the media? Who's winning on Twitter? And the, the, the second point, the second question is, do you believe that social media is good for democracy or bad for democracy? John Easton. I don't think either is winning on, on social media. I think they're both kind of losing. Yeah, I, I can see it from that perspective, but I, I, I will take an opposite stance and say that uh, on the whole, I believe the president is winning. Uh, I think you can win um, – and still not be a credible source of information. And I think that he is winning in the same way that he won last November. He has created a cult of personality. He is, I mean, we, we went from having a bully pulpit to just having a bully. And uh, I'm a Republican. I support the president of the United States. I support the presidency of the United States. But democracy wins when there's conversation and there's transparency. And right now, I believe the president is winning on social media, so much so that I think it would be fair to say that he's kicking ass. President's dominating on social media. Um, we, we, we need to, I said that because the president said We need to, to, we need to, we need to tighten up our answers here, Adam. Uh, president's winning, dominating, and social media is tighten bad for up, democracy. Son. Thank you very much. Theory three, shutdown, showdown. According to news reports, the president has told confidants that he thinks a government shutdown would be good for him. Next week, the continuing resolution will expire, and Republicans will have a choice of passing another short-term extension or passing a longer-term omnibus bill. The problem, of course, is that it's unlikely they can get enough votes in either the House and as a, or the Senate. The House, because they don't have Republicans, can't unite. And the Senate, they need 60 votes to get a, uh, a appropriations bill passed. My theory, a government shutdown is bad for Republicans, and bad for the president, it makes the whole team look like the gang that can't shoot straight. But there's also some risk for the Democrats. If they filibuster a CR because it doesn't include DACA, they will look partisan and beholden to their own special interests. John Easton, there is a bunch of stuff that has to get done by the end of the year. Will it get done? 
Well, first of all, this is about the silliest season in government when you talk about it. I mean, John Fury was just saying CR and DACA and, and let me add Om- Omni. It's Omnibus. Like too many, too many acronyms. It's it's just alphabet soup and too much but, insider t- insider. You come here for insider <laughs> knowledge. You have to know what's going on if but, you want to get it. And it is, and you do come here for that. Yeah. I realize that, but I just had to say it because um, it actually it, it 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 showcases just how brutal this month is now and is going to be all the way until Christmas. And I, I think I think you're right. I think I think there are a lot of must dos, and this is just beyond the tax bill. The must-dos have stacked up really since middle of the year, that the, the things that have to get done. A couple of things that need to get done, and this is what was really interesting, is when you saw the deal between the President, Pelosi, and Schumer, part of that was we're going to figure out DACA. We're going to figure out this, this immigration issue that Congress needs to come up with something. Well, if you read stories in the, in the recent couple of days about, about President Trump saying that he thinks he got worked in that deal, that he looks like a chump in that, <laughs> in that deal, that he's going to take a hard line at the end of the year and make sure that his supporters know that he is tough on immigration. This whole issue with it, the, the, the Dreamers and making sure that uh, they are you know, accounted for, they're, they're treated well in this, in this legislation, that's going to be a major league sticking point. But then you've got funding for the government for the following year. You know, that, that's a huge thing. And, and what they need to do politically, I believe, Republicans especially, is they need to get this through as a regular spending bill, even if it takes them all the way up to Christmas Eve, so they don't have to deal with this next year. Politically, it's just rife with problems. If they have to revisit the spending all over again in March or April or whenever, but from a practical standpoint, you're talking about defense and you're talking about things like biomedical research from the NIH. When you freeze that down both are just it's 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 one step forward two steps back three steps back because these programs and these fundings they just dry up and and there's no predictability they can't plan they can't fund they can't research they can't produce subs weapon systems whatever it is it is a huge that's why john mccain harps on this so much right they need to get all of this done and and john in full disclosure we do have a client that wants to get more funding for nih we like that client a lot we wish we had some defense clients, yeah. um, but we don't. We like because we like defense. We and we pro, we're pro defense in this. <laughs> and to your point, John uh, Adam Belmar, um, the president had a press event in uh, the cabinet room, I think, where um, the two sh- two chairs were empty next to him, uh, and the memes that came from that were pretty freaking hilarious. The the president thought he was being clever, but it might have came back and bit him on the butt. What do you think? What do you think about that? Well, I will try to be brief. (laughs) Well, you know, when I ask a a question very quickly, dominate or not, you guys are just going to be answered. So go ahead. Sorry. Okay. (laughs) um, I'm going to go long now. (laughs) But uh, it was in the Roosevelt room and it was that. Was it Roosevelt room? It was. And, um, you know, I, I, I actually thought it was brilliant. You know, I, I was unhappy that the president decided to undercut the uh, the meeting the morning of with the attack tweets. With a tweet? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I think they were within their right to, uh, you know, take their ball and go home. Uh, the president held the meeting anyway. And I loved the picture. I loved the optics of the empty chairs. And I liked some of the rhetoric that came along with it. So as a visual communicator, as somebody 
who might have been in that White House and said, what are we going to do? I'm going to hold that meeting, and you're going to give us a nice, beautiful wide shot looking at the uh, nameplate of the Senate majority leader, or minority leader who wasn't there. I don't think it bit him in the butt. You don't, don't think, think so. so. You don't think so. Maybe not. Um, it did kind of accentuate the fact that they didn't show up yeah. and that they were offended by some you know, stupid tweet, which is stunning to me. How much It was offensive. They're on their way down to mediums like, I don't see a deal. <laughs> I, I think that sometimes, whether it's the other party or whether it's, it's, it's reporters, I think sometimes people take the bait, his bait way too easily. Yeah, they do. Now, this was an offensive. He should not have done that. If you're trying to get stuff done, you just gotta you, you gotta hold your fire like that. But you know, they could have taken the opposite tack, Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi, and just gone. And because the last time they went down the White House to talk about the end of the year package, it turned out pretty good. It turned out pretty good. They had a deal. They should have gone. And they should have gone just to see what you know. You never know with this president what you're going to get, and you could get something you kind of like. If I'm Chuck Schumer, I want to be in the room with President Trump. All the time. Yes. Because I can persuade him to do crap that I want him to do, and it will drive the Republicans crazy. And that's that's how I would – so I think you're right, John. But that will drive Chuck Schumer's base crazy. Well, I know, and that's the other problem is that Democrats are more rabid than the Republicans and more radical and more angry about everything. Um, you know, Adam Belmar, thinking about this and the government shutdown, you know, we have a possible tax reform bill done – hopefully today out of the Senate, but hopefully next week. Can, can the Congress get all this stuff done in the next couple of weeks? I, uh, I, I've, I have never subscribed at this table that they must get it done, but I definitely see a path, and I believe that they can get it done. And most importantly, I think I agree with Mr. Easton that for their own political future and the ability to have uh, a successful 2018, they – they really, really have to seize the moment and get it done. It's not a must. Everything can slide. As John Easton just said, you know, Trump is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. <laughs> but I think that this is something that will, in fact, happen. No shutdown. Uh, John Easton, what are you buying or selling today? Some of you may have watched uh, last night's game between the Washington Redskins and the, and the Dallas Cowboys. We're not going to litigate that 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 contest it was brutal if you're a washington redskins fan but i am going to buy the the quarterback of the washington redskins kirk cousins why because uh this is a guy who has done everything asked of him from the day he was drafted and not and then some he has been not only a model quarterback off the field but on the field he's been a leader he is his numbers uh speak for themselves and I think that if the Redskins come back to him and say, oh, but here's a nice long-term deal with you, we want you to stay, he is going to say, you know what, you're about a year too late. Plan on him playing for another team in the NFL and having a sweet contract. Uh, Adam Belmar, you are the Washington Redskins fan, although you are too kind of, aren't mm -hmm. you? Uh, what, you? What are you buying or selling this week? I agree with you. Uh, you can't buy what he's already buying. <laughs> It's already, it's already bought. It's already bought. Sold. Okay, here's what I'm buying this week. Safe rooms. Okay? The, the threat from North Korea has never been more real. Okay? Topher Cushman, uh, we're all thinking about the Redskins, but think about this. Think about buying a safe room and having it put in your house because with the attacks that are going on against all men, the war on men, 
And I, I thought we weren't going to go there. I didn't go there. <laughs> I'm just saying a safe room can be good for a lot of things. And right now I'd like to build one and invite all of my friends over and we can lock the door and hopefully just let this whole thing so this blow safer, I, I've always thought of safe rooms as like uh, a protection, pr- protection against burglars. Is this a fallout shelter as well? Well, let me just say, um, you may have seen the movie The Purge where all hell breaks loose and people can do anything they want for 24 hours. This is the political and social equivalent of The Purge, okay? Just ask Matt Lauer. I'm telling you, Invest in safe rooms. Bye, bye, bye. Okay. <laughs> I have two buys. I know you're not supposed to wait, have two buys. The first buy is if we can get a non – if anyone can develop a non-addictive opioid painkiller. I hurt my knee on Thanksgiving, and it's been hard because I went running, which is in the rain, big mistake, um, and my knee stiffened up on me. I tell you, when you're in pain, all you really want is a freaking painkiller that puts the pain away. If you get something that is not an addictive opioid, you are going to corner the market because I'll tell you one thing. Advil does not work. Aleve does not work. Tylenol. That's for minor pain, John. Yeah, well, it doesn't. If you have a little bit more than minor pain, it doesn't help you at all. The second thing I want to buy is the uh, Sinclair Broadcasting because I guarantee you that they're going to hire up a lot of these folks who have been fired. And um, they, and if it's not Sinclair, it's going to be somebody else. There's a lot of talent that's out on the on the field that someone's going to hire. And and, and I agree with that. And there there's a whole network ready to be bought and, and developed, and it'll be it'll it'll make Boku bucks. And uh, so I I would buy that whatever that is. So those are my two things. Um, this is John Fury from the Fury Theory Podcast, brought to you brought along with my two colleagues, Adam Belmar and John Easton. We are happy and proud that you join us on the uh, Fear Theory podcast today, brought to you by EFB Advocacy. EFB means... Excellent for business. Yeah, baby.